Welcome to the Rise Network podcast show, a podcast dedicated to help you reach your dream lifestyle through investing in real estate. We're going to be sitting down with new, intermediate, and experienced investors to talk all about real estate and how it has changed their lives. If you're looking to scale your portfolio or even just get into real estate investing, you're in the right place. Make sure to tune in. Hello, everyone. You are listening to the Rise Real Estate Investing Podcast with your host, Austin Ye and Mayu. What's going on, everybody? Finally got a much better mic, and hopefully, this time my audio is way better. <laughs> this is your um, third mic? Uh, no, this is my second. Actually, maybe it's my third. I can't remember. Um, but my setup, like my biggest problem is actually just my podcast setup. Like I'm, I don't really have like a small room or like an, an a segmented like area where like I have it set up. It just kind of like wherever, like if my wife's in the office and I'm like, sometimes I'm in the bedroom, sometimes I'm in the living room, sometimes I'm just all over the place. Um, so whatever. That's no, I'm you, my girlfriend's right beside me right now. So like, she's everything I'm talking, she's just staring at me. It's the same room. So like, it's no, I feel you on that. With con- That's condo living for you. Yeah, I know. It's fucking stupid. <laughs> um, awesome, man. What have you been up to? Um, I think we've been up to the same thing. We, well, I, I guess it's Sunday. We've been up to the same thing. Uh, I went golfing for the first time with, I feel like we're always mentioning Corey's name, but Corey's just been doing a ton for us in terms of socialization, engagement, yep. networking. Corey put together a golfing tournament for his students and it was pretty awesome. We had over 50 people turn out, a lot of new golfers such as myself. I actually screwed up my wrist because I was, I don't know how to golf. So I'm just using like brute strength to try to knock the, uh, the ball. <laughs> That's not how you're supposed to do it. So injured myself a bit. Um, had a ton of fun though. Just got, not only did I get to like build relationships with the group that I directly golf with, but there was about three or four hours of networking after. And it's been so long since we had in-person interactions, especially with people like in Corey's group or a pretty tight knit community. So we talk online, we talk on Instagram, we're in the same Facebook page, but I've never met probably 95% of them. Um, so it was yeah. great just to chat in person and, you know, put a, put a face to a name. Because um, yeah. networking, as we've always mentioned, is just so crucial to an investor's journey. It's also just easy. Well, okay. So my, my first surprise was a lot of people that I thought were taller were actually not that tall. So I was just like surprised. I was like, you guys, like nice to like put a body to this face that I've always been seeing on like Zoom and stuff. But um, it's also just like much easier than trying to like hop on a call with like 50 different people, right? Like you knock out 50 different conversations in like three hours. And they're usually like deeper conversations, right? Versus like a, like a, just like a high level conversation on text or Instagram and stuff like that. Um, so for anyone that's, that's interested, you guys should definitely start getting out to these networking events. I'm like 90% sure more and more are going to start opening up. Um, and it's really like when you get out in an environment like that, you kind of, you, you start to have these deeper conversations with other individuals, people that are a little bit ahead of you, a little bit behind you, um, where you kind of share your insights and, and people that are at the same pace, right? And you get an idea of what everyone's doing. And I think the biggest part is it just kind of like motivates you a little bit more, right? Um, when you're talking to someone ahead of you, it motivates you to do a little bit more. When you're talking to someone that's maybe where you were six months ago, it makes you realize how much you've done in like the last like five, six months, right? Like I was talking to individuals that had a significant amount of capital um, and they were like debating like leaving their job, right? So it was just like, holy shit, like talking to them about like my experience leaving my job, I was just like, wow, okay, like I didn't actually, re- like that was like, it feels so recent that like I left my job, but I'm like, it's actually been like a good like four whatever months it is or three months or something like that, right? Really? Uh-huh. Okay. So I've left my job for, for even longer than that. It's, yeah, I know. You were, you're just flying back. Six yeah. months or nine months now? No, wait, you left in February. I left in February, end of February. Yeah, yeah you're six month mark, eh? 
Wow, that's exciting. I feel like I accomplished a lot more putting my 100% focus in real estate and not needing to worry about my uh, workload at work and whether it looks, you know, the politics, politics. and all of that. Yeah, yeah. yeah like you're, you're just 100% committed to your own. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I think we're going to say the th- same thing. We're 100 committed, 100% committed to our business and we don't actually need to worry about optics anymore. Yeah. Right. Like that was the big thing. Optics is actually very time consuming and stressful. Because you yeah. want to be doing just enough to, like, you know, kind of pass by and so on and so forth. The one thing is that, like, it feels like the days are super short, though, like, at the same time. Like, it just flies by every single day, right? But now I'm looking back and I'm like, it's only been, like, three or four months, I think. Because I left in mid-May. What is that? Mid-May to June, June, July, July, to August. It's been three months. Holy shit, that's it? Like, it feels like I've been doing this for so long now. It's ridiculous. So it's kind of like yeah. the opposite, opposite of what most people say, where, like, the days are short and, like, the months are super long, it seems like. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so I, I guess on my end, what else have we been up to? Um, one of our projects, I, I mentioned the appraisal was screwed up. We are just going to refi it at that right now. So um, the money is going to be coming in from Desjardins fairly soon. Uh, our flip, a, just to give value. What's the loan to value you're getting at Desjardins? 80%, 80% loan to value, but 25 year AM max. They don't go 30 year amortization, um, which oh, okay. is fine, honestly. Like, it's yeah. not cash flow plays as much anymore, right? It's just yeah. like getting those properties, having it cash flow a bit, but I'm not going to live off of it as we and, talked about uh, before. And I guess you're like DCR, like, like your coverage ratio, like your income to liability is pretty solid for that property because it's a duplex and it's commercial financing. So ultimately you're just getting like normal commercial financing, but like your numbers are pretty solid on the property, right? So they went 80%. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Cause it's the units were vacant renovated. So like if I were to put tenant in, it'll be, it'll have a strong DCR. Um, on top of that, my flip project, there's some delays going on still, but we're hoping to wrap up by the end of this month or early next month, and then have that listed on uh, the MLS and hopefully uh, turn a profit on that. That flip has been like a complete nightmare in terms of timelines, materials, so on and so forth. It it's, looks really uh, nice. So this is really crazy. This is the one where you guys have like, you went with like the big baseboards and like, I think you saw like a washroom on your Instagram. Account. Yeah. Yeah. It's a luxury flip. So we have to go yeah. luxury. But, but the thing is, is when you do luxury flips, you need to be very involved in the material selection process. Cause you can't have the contractor just go to Lowe's and pick up generic vanities, mirrors. You <laughs> actually have to be very uh, meticulous in the materials you send them because it's yeah. going to tie into the overall aesthetic. It's not a general burr property. Yeah. And, and the, the surprising part about it is usually like, when you leave it to a contractor to choose materials, they will choose the, the, the cheapest product, right? And it's like, it's not even your money, man. Like, why did you choose this shit? Like, I'm perfectly fine yeah. paying like an extra like 50 bucks for like a tap if way better, right? Um, but the contractor will all, always just kind of assume that you want like the cheapest product on the shelf, right? Um, yeah, our, our flip's actually going pretty good as well. Like that, that one's going surprisingly much faster than we expected. Um, got our contractor, like the contracting crew that we use, they have like various skill sets. Like they're good for like, like they're good for like, I'm not going to call it like low wage, right? But like they're good for like kind of like general skill sets. They can't really do tiling. They're shitty at mudding, right? Um, but like you tell them to put down a floor, <laughs> install a kitchen, like bathroom, like just like the normal shit, they can like nail that stuff out, right? So step one was we convinced them that like to bring in someone else for like drywalling and mudding to like get it done like way faster, right? Um, and that worked out really well. They brought in someone for dirt cheap. Now we got to like, we're, so we're basically moving from that pure GC model to GC with subs. Right. And I think like finding a sub for tiling is going to be key for us. Cause like these guys take forever to do tiling for whatever reason. So like, if I could just get someone that like can nail that stuff out like way faster, I think that's going to be much, much better way to go. Um, and this flip like is probably going to be the first time where we actually have to do a decent amount of exterior, um, 
exterior work just because like it's a huge lot and like that's really what's going to sell right so we almost paid like nine thousand dollars for all new windows because like the windows look really fucked up um so, so that's I, actually like, not a terrible price are you talking about like material and labor for all windows yeah yeah for, for all windows but it's okay. a bungalow it's a bungalow so it's not like two floors but oh was, fair enough yeah yeah <laughs> I, I think there was maybe like 10 or 12, I don't remember how many windows, but it was a good amount. And we were going to go with black modern windows. And then like, we, we like got them to just like, like our contractors on site to just like properly deep clean the windows. And like, when we actually like deep clean them, they looked like brand new. So we were like, you know, forget it. Like we're just going to keep these windows nice. and replace, replace the only one that's like actually broken. Right. So um, save some money there. And yeah, we'll see how the flip's going. I think we'll, we'll make a decent profit margin, but ultimately like we, we were going to go private. We ended up just going all cash and like, it's just, I don't know. So like part of our profit margin is obviously like the interest that we would have paid. Right. So. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, so let's bring it in into today's guest who actually has a couple of flips on going themselves. I believe it's three flips. Um, so we're going to have Andrew Cox in today's podcast. Andrew is an investor who's really decided to scale up over the last two years and double down his, on his investing journey. He started off earlier on buying a couple of properties here and there in winter before Windsor blew up before we started jumping in the market as well. Um, after some trials and tribulations at the beginning um, and a bit of a slow kind of haul, he was eventually let go from his job and then doubled down in real estate, building real estate businesses, acquiring and flipping properties. It's amazing. And we were talking about this earlier. It's amazing to see what you can achieve just by having more free time and staying focused. And Andrew's a prime example of that, had freed up time and was able to expand his portfolio and has ambitious goals um, going on to the next few months, uh, wrapping up the year. So make sure to tune into this podcast. This is an episode you don't want to miss. And for those who are considering leaving their full-time job, maybe Andrew's episode will push you towards leading. Yes. Hello, everyone. Today, we are joined with a very special guest and someone that we had the pleasure of getting to know over the past um, couple of years because we're all in the same pro uh, coaching program, actually, under Corey McKinnon. Um, we're here with Andrew Cox. Andrew, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Really glad to be on here. Awesome, awesome Andrew. So uh, so for everyone that doesn't know you, um, why don't you just give everyone a kind of a quick level background on what you're doing? And then we'll, we'll kind of dig into your, your earlier backstory because I don't think myself and Austin know you know, how you first really got started in real estate. The origin story, yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, currently uh, I'm focusing on um, multifamily rentals. I started out with singles, but, you know, leveling up like most of us do. And I'm also focusing on a split focus of flips. And that is uh, for my income generation side of the business. And then, of course, the rentals for uh, wealth creation. And I'm just uh, I'm just doing that, leveling up every day, and, and trying to sort of use the tools that we've all learned and, and apply them in a successful way. Yeah, definitely. I actually just saw an Instagram post you made. Um, you got a hundred percent VTB, right? All you had to put in was nine k, I guess, for lawyer fees, so on and so forth. So you're definitely taking whatever you learn and and actually putting that to good use. We're gonna have to talk about that a bit more. <laughs> it's kind of funny because like I was talking to somebody recently where over the last couple of years, like everything gets stored back here somewhere, it's all there. And then it's just a matter of like implementing it when you're sort of ready. And as you, as you grow, like, you know, action begets action begets action, right? And you just kind of keep going up and up and up. And then like that stored information is there. And I remember somebody saying on a, a YouTube video or something like that, that 
you know, a VTB, it's like, you just got to ask. So like I asked for a hundred percent VTB figuring like I asked for a hundred percent VTB backend loaded interest, a low interest rate, all this stuff. And, and they ended up saying yes. And I was like, Oh, <laughs> really, it's that easy. Right. <laughs> so Andrew, how did you get started in real estate? Like when was it that you really got started in real estate? Um, what did you do and, and what was that journey like? Like how, how long before you took real estate seriously, let's call it that. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and seriously is, is, is a, a great point because I started out as investing in real estate as more of a retirement plan. So it was back in 2017 when, you know, thankfully prices were a lot cheaper, especially in Windsor where I started. And it, it really, really started from, you know, honestly, like turning 40 and realizing that I had not properly saved the nest egg. And the idea of saving, you know, this is an important point, saving money, mutual funds and things like that just wasn't working for me. And couple that with the fact that I, had used my my RSPs for my first time home buyer's plan buy a property for myself. Um, like literally I I had nothing actually in savings at that point. It was all in my house. And I thought this is not a good position to be in. So I started doing the research to say, okay, well, how how do you plan for your retirement? How do you get, you know, secondary incomes and passive income and all this sort of stuff? And when I came across real estate, it was it became very quickly a no-brainer. Um, I've always kind of liked the idea of, of owning property, but, you know, like most people, it sort of seems so far out of reach, right? Anyway, start digging into it, digging into it, digging into it. And I, I really love the fact that you could save your for your retirement while other people actually paid for it. Like other people are putting money in your piggy bank, the, the tenants, right? So I did a whole bunch of reading, like hundreds and hundreds of audio books. I had a lot of uh, commuting time in the car. So I ended up pulling the trigger in 2017 and I bought one property. And then, you know, that, that feeling when you get one and everything kind of goes well, and I'm like, oh, yep. okay, I'm going to get another, you know? <laughs> so I, 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 I bought it from a HELOC on my property in Toronto. So that was obviously a, a bit easier for me because I had this massive uh, of equity position. But anyway, then I had some problem, problems with my properties, you know, typical landlord stuff. And I considered selling. Like I was one of those those landlords that we all sort of tap into to say like, oh, if you're a tired landlord, you know, we'll buy your properties. And something inside me said, you know, don't give in, just work your way through this. And I did, and I'm so thankful that I did. But that that whole process was about three years. Um, where what I was kind of issues if you don't if you don't mind me interjecting. Oh, were you facing on, on the landlording side? Yeah. So so here's a little lesson, to everybody. Get all the problems out on your first property and nothing will phase you. So I bought a, a boarding house, not fully understanding what that meant. Mm -hmm. And I couldn't refinance it because it was a boarding house. Had a few recommendations on, you know, skirting the gray line as to getting financing. And I just didn't feel comfortable doing all that stuff at the time or really now, actually. But um, yeah, it was uh, sort of OS. What is it? OS or o uh, ODS, ODSP? ODS uh, tenants. Yeah. yeah. And, and I thought that was safe, but I learned the hard way that if the ODS tenant stops reporting to their social worker, they just cut you off. And so yeah. all of a sudden the rent stopped coming and I didn't know why. Couldn't get in touch with the tenant. I actually reached out to the social worker through like figured out how to find them. And they said, uh, well, he doesn't qualify anymore. And that was a big eye opener for me. Yeah, it wasn't really that secure. 
and, and then just as a heads up like even if they did qualify they could they don't have to give you the money and me and Mayu face that as well like they yeah. redirected the money into their personal account and then we just never got the run and couldn't do anything about it but sorry to interject yeah. but no that's it's absolutely it's an educational program right mm-hmm. um but anyway just problems like that drugs uh damage uh a lot of i i think that the tenants that pay three hundred dollars for a 10 by 10 bedroom they know more about the landlord tenant act than you do and they like play the system and it's just it was rough it was two years like that's actually what stalled me it was two years of ongoing like one thing after the next after the next after the next and then it culminated in bed bugs and Mm. and i had bed bugs for i think it was like eight months because i did all the spraying and this and that but the tenants weren't begging their clothes and and cleaning like the house was a mess so um that went on and on and on so that was a real learning lesson is i, I kind of stay away from that type of situation now let me ask you two questions quick quick, quick kind of educational questions there andrew so boarding house are the rules really like it's still part of landlord tenant board and like there's still like the same regulation applies right like at what point do you kind of have these like people that you can just kind of kick out easily. Is that like the roommate side? Like if they're, if they're, if, if you're renting out rooms, but you live in there, you can kind of kick people out pretty easily without going through the LTB. Is that true? Or to my understanding that that, that would be the case. Cause if it's your primary residence, um, although, I mean, let's face it, the landlord tenant doesn't really make it all that easy. And if somebody's going to fight you back, yeah, uh, you just get tied up in, in sort of tribunals yeah. and things like that. I, I, I mean, I guess the lesson is just be careful who you invite into your home. Yeah. And then, and then I guess the second thing with the bed bugs, because I've never actually had bed bugs. I've heard horror stories of people that have. Um, what do you have to do? Like, what, like, why is it such a big hassle? <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, because they're they're just really hard to to navigate. They 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 find little. I've heard that they actually even go inside of electrical boxes. And so they're when they're spraying, they're actually really hard to find. And the best way the fumigators actually wanted preference would be to empty the house out yeah. for like three days yeah. mm-hmm. and you bug bomb the entire house. But of course the tenants aren't going to cooperate in that respect. At least these ones didn't. So we had to do what would be a lesser effective uh, spraying along baseboards and under beds and all that sort of stuff. But then the process is actually really involved. They have to put uh, a, a plastic, like a bed, a zipped up bed liner on the mattresses, mm. the pillows, all their clothing has to be bagged. So even if you do laundry, then you have to put it back into bags and seal the bags. Any sort of fabric type material in your house, like like couches would have to be tarped and all this sort of stuff. And that's to try to get them. There's even these little little feet you put under your bed so they can't crawl up the bed posts. It's pretty involved. Mm-hmm. Like the, the fumigation came with a whole like one page checklist of things that the tenants actually had to do. And there was five different tenants in there and some of them cooperated to some degree and some of them didn't cooperate at all. So it was a really messy situation because the ones that were cooperating were being pissed off that it was still a problem. Yeah. Meanwhile, I'm like, well, the, the guy in the next room to you isn't cooperating. So why don't you tell him to cooperate? Yeah. And this went on and on. Well, ultimately the liability unfortunately falls on the landlord's shoulder. Right? I've heard investors that have done a sim- like a similar situation. They solved their problem the tenant wasn't cooperating, then the tenant took him to court, but it was like as much as the tenant's fault as well. Right. Uh, yeah. And well, they had to pay damages. 
I've got cockroaches. Oh, I wonder why. Like, stop being a slob. You know? yeah. <laughs> we, can, we can move forward uh, from this. After going through the first property, like experience all those trials and tribulations, what, what happened from there? So that definitely slowed you down. But how did you get that back? Slowed me the down, but, you know, the great, the great thing is, is that I bought two properties in that first year. And the second property, for the whole time that I was, I was dealing with this boarding house, I did not hear a peep mm. out of that property. And it was cash flowing really well. Like, I think it was at the time about 400 bucks a month for a single family. So I was really happy. And that's kind of what kept me going because I said, well, this is what's possible. So let's like not lose sight. So I kept going. And anyway, it was uh, in uh, late 2019 that I went to a, uh, a seminar with, I won't name names, I guess, but uh, somebody we all know and, and really got inspired to keep going. And I, I got dialed into the Canadian real estate scene. Previously, I'd only been consuming bigger pockets and then a bunch of books, which of course are mostly American based content and stuff like that. But once I realized that there was a Canadian uh, group, like, a, like an environment, like a network, I, I really started dialing into that and signed up for boot camps. And it was probably about four or five months after that, that I signed up with Corey, which is our mutual coach, of course. And then COVID hit. <laughs> that was February of uh, 2020, I guess. And then in March it hit, but so that slowed things down a little bit either also, but it was a really great uh, to experience this, this massive community that was so helpful. And once you dial into the Facebook groups and you join a couple of other organizations, you realize like how exponentially quickly you can learn from people that are, are right on the ground. They're your neighbors, they're in the markets that you want to invest. And it just seems so much more real because reading all the American content, there's always this part of you that says, well, that works over there. You know, you're hearing about buying a house for $50,000 and you're like, well, that works over there. So how does it work over here when I have to buy a house for 150, 200, $300,000 or more? So that really got me energized. And I decided uh, to really take it to the next level as a career, you know? Mm -hmm. There's something super important there. I think it's just getting dialed into what I call like kind of the real estate ecosystem in Canada, right? Because like once you're dialed in, all of a sudden your Facebook, your Instagram, your emails, it all just becomes, oh, Andrew bought a property here, Austin bought a property there, this guy bought that and whatever, right? And like the renovations, and it all just seems like it kind of pushes you to keep doing more and more because you see everyone else doing more and more in a local community, right? So I think that's, exactly. that's a huge part that like a lot of people kind of just don't see it. I was surprised when like I stumbled upon the, like the, the ecosystem and I kind of just, you know, start plugging yourself in, following more people and what you consume also starts to change as well, right? So that was uh, 2019 and 2020, you kind of got plugged in. And at this point, you still had two rental properties, right? Yeah. 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 So, so, so I, a little bit more of the backstory was I actually, in October of 2019, I got laid off from my, my job. I'd been in the printing industry for 25 years. And, and that was interesting to me because it really says to me that, yeah, your, your job is not as secure as you think it is. And I use that as an opportunity and a, and a sort of a, a job board or whatever you want to call it to say, I'm not going to go back into an industry that I didn't like anyway. I should have quit 10 years ago. So I burned the ships and said, I'm going to go into this full time. I had no source of income to speak wow. of. I just said, do it. Now, thankfully, I did kind of realize at that time when I was in the HR office, basically signing my documents. I was like, I'm okay. I've got these properties. They at least between them, they fed me 
uh, by this point, they were feeding me, you know, 800 or a thousand bucks a month. And I was like, well, that's something, yeah. you know, and yeah. if I can, I'm a handy guy. I, I actually had a side business that was handyman services. So I just dialed that up and said, okay, this is full renovation services. And for the next like six months, I did uh, working for myself as a renovations company. But then when COVID hit, that's really when I said, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm in this ecosystem, as you put it. And I have all these connections and this, this educational resources everywhere around me. So when people stopped wanting me at their houses, I said, okay, that's it. This is the universe told me twice. One, I got laid off from my corporate job. Second, I started my own company and then COVID hit. And it's like, okay, now you got to pivot again. And it just kept pushing me towards, dude, go into real estate. This is what you've been reading about mm -hmm. for three years. You, you're going to do this. So I did it. And um, I'll tell you, when you, when you commit to it 100%, you really see the results. And you know, I'll, I'll do a little plug for coaching and mentorship. Like if you surround yourself by high level individuals, the curve looks like this. It's, it's not like this. It, it goes up. And for everyone that can't see that, Andrew's doing an exponential curve. <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah, right. I forgot. This is a podcast. That, that's a literal definition of when life give you, gives you lemons, make lemonade, right? Because you had a bunch of obstacles handed to you, but you were still able to pivot and not give up. Um, so COVID came around. Obviously, everyone was a bit worried because we didn't know exactly what that meant for housing prices, um, tenants making payments, so on and so forth. What did you do when, when COVID hit around? Like, did you start to double down in investing, take it easy? What was that mindset kind of light and what actions did you take? Absolutely. So two things happened. One, when I went 100% into real estate, a buddy of mine that I've known for a long time, him and I had been talking about scaling our, you know, our wealth in general. And when he saw that I was doing this full time, he actually started to back me as my first JV partner. Mm. So, okay, I had somebody to invest with. And then when COVID hit, it took me a couple of weeks. But when, you know, the stock market was going crazy mm -hmm. and something resonated and it went through my head is uh, uh, Warren Buffett's quote, be greedy when others are fearful when others are greedy. And I've been reading that quote for the past three and a half years. And I was like, this is the moment. This is the moment he was referring to. So I just went hard and I bought like in, in March, I bought two properties, I think. That was and, the perfect wow, time to buy it too, eh? Yeah, like, <laughs> March like, and April. People are panicking right yeah. now. And, and even like I was buying some, uh, one of them was a bank property. So they weren't maybe being as, they just wanted to dump, right? They were not wanting to hold things through this either. So it was a really good opportunity to get. And, and those properties, by the time I was done renovations, um, you know, it took several, you know, one property, then the next. And I, I sort of staggered them. I was able to stagger them a bit and then, and then bought another one um, four months later. So I, I have this tendency of stacking. I, I buy two, three, four properties at a time. <laughs> and you then, kind of pause. Yeah, it's, it's kind of funny how it, it seems to be a reoccurring theme. But yeah, COVID with the right mindset, I, I was able to take advantage of it. And um, it was probably the best thing that could happen to me. Yeah. So at this point, you've got like, you know, four or five like rental properties, but you're doing this like full time, right? And like real estate, and this is something I mean, I'll talk about a bit. But real estate cash flow, it's great on paper, but there's always, you know, these like random expenses that completely distort your cash flow that like no matter how much you like budget and buffer, like unless you completely overkill it, 
right? Um, there's shit that's going to happen, right? And so doing doing it full time, um, you know, how do you, like you left, like I'm assuming like kind of decent paying job where like now you're like into this full time, you've got four or five properties, even if they each cash flow like 500 bucks each, that's about like two, two to three grand, right? Um, what did you do for like the active income side? Because I, I think you moved into flipping, right? So was this kind of around the same time or? Wait, sorry, before uh, we get into that, I just want to clarify everything before was with JV partner. Like you said, you bought two or three. You know, coming into COVID was two properties in my own name. And then uh, three started out basically two to three with JVs. And to answer your question, um, yeah, that was a problem, especially when you're splitting the profits on the rents in half. So what I ended up doing to get me through sort of the hump was I refinanced my two existing properties with my JV partner. So I, I, no, I no longer had a job. So yeah, I had yeah. a lot of equity in those properties, mm-hmm. but I didn't have the ability to unlock it. So it was suggested to me that if I partner with him on those two as well, he doesn't actually have to put any down payment because I already own them, but his credibility or um, you know mortgage capabilities opened up. We got all the equity out of that property, those two properties. But I made a deal with him that said, as of the refinance date, you get future profit. But I get everything up to that point. So I got a big fat check and that carried me for quite a long time and, and it was allowing me to make more investments and stuff. But to answer your question, yeah, the, the realization that cash flow and properties, especially when you're joint venturing, is not, I don't believe personally that that is retirement money. Um, and not to mention that it doesn't take much to eat up a lot of that profit if something significant happens. Yeah. You deplete your reserve funds and basically, you know, I had a tenant trash a property recently and it's going to take probably three quarters of the profit from the year to fix mm-hmm. the property. So that sort of stuff does happen. So the answer to your question is yes. In 2020, I was building wealth by acquiring properties through JVs. In 2021 is when I had to pivot and say, okay, I really have to take income generation seriously and active income specifically. And I started flipping. I had I had a, a corp that I hadn't actually used in 2020 because I wasn't wholesaling, I wasn't flipping, I wasn't doing anything. And then 2021 is when I reactivated that company, started doing flips. And actually I'm going through a rebranding right now because the company was originally set up to do the renovations that I said I was doing myself for other people, like as a renovations company. Um, and so the name didn't really fit what I was doing. It was called reinvest renovations. But of course, when I market that people think that I'm a contractor. Mm-hmm. So yep. I, I rebranded to, uh, which, you know, I'm coming out with soon. You can wait for that. Maybe by <laughs> the time this podcast comes out, it, it'll be uh, shown all over social media. But now I'm, I'm very actively doing flips. I have three on the go currently, and I plan on keep doing going hard on the flips. If so I come across deals that I might want to just wholesale, I might do that, but I'm not focusing on wholesaling as an income source specifically. So there's a lot to actually dig down on. Um, one thing that actually just popped in my mind, we should have asked this earlier, is, is that you briefly mentioned you had a house in Toronto. I assume you still live in Toronto. Well, I know that. And you're investing out in Windsor, doing burrs, like now you're doing flips, um, not only in Windsor, but in, in different um, cities as well. What's that management like? Are you a long distance investor or are you an active investor going down? Combination. Um, 
I still like the the tangible, the tactile feel of being in a property and seeing it, but I also recognize that it's impractical to do that much traveling and the timing, like in, in real estate, you know, the velocity of money and um, acting fast is, is very important. So I've set up a system like Windsor is where my, my first market was, and it is still sort of, I guess, considered to be my home market. I do a lot remotely. COVID actually really helped because everybody from lawyers and everything is remote now. So it really helped the situation. But I, I can send a local person to check on a property. I can make a lot of decisions based on the pictures that I see on MLS or a wholesale deal or whatever. Um, getting comfortable with just looking at some pictures and being able to act based on that is a huge advantage because you don't need to waste a lot of time. But yeah, my realtor will go through the properties, video call me or send a contractor and just see like, okay, how bad is this house? You know, you're expecting it to be somewhat bad or, uh, you know, need work, I should say. So it's been, it's been, I didn't find setting up a system was all that difficult. And I was investing in Windsor, you know, five years ago before everybody was talking about long distance investing. So I sort of, by the nature of just having to do it, like I didn't have a choice. Windsor was a market I could afford. I lived in Toronto, you know, I had a full-time job at, when I started. So like, it wasn't practical for me to go back and forth and do it all myself. So property management is key. Once the renovations are done, I, I you know, I don't even really think about the property anymore. Yep. hundred percent. Let me ask you this, Andrew. Uh, so what do you think is the main difference between flipping and burring? I have recently learned this. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so I am quoted on a video in my feed somewhere saying the transition between burring and flipping is a fairly natural one because, well, you're already doing the renovations. Yeah. What's the difference? And the difference is the features and the fixtures, like the level of renovation and also the buy. You can, let's call it like, lose, not lose money, but you can leave money in the property on a burr and you'll still be okay because you have 10 years. The next refi, you'll get it all back anyway. So it's not so critical if you do go over your renovation budget because you want it to add a little bit more value. Maybe you split the washing, like, so there's in, in suite washing machines and that costs, you know, an extra couple of grand to buy the machines and so on. You're like, okay, well, that's worth it. The ROI in that for higher rents is going to work out in the end. But if you're flipping and you don't keep to that budget, ooh, <laughs> look out. So if, if, if you do that, you're, you're just not making any profit anymore. And, and I've only just started in 2021 and I'll admit it's been a bit of a learning curve for me. And my first couple of deals, quite frankly, have not been all that successful. And I will say to people, as you know, here's a learning tip, because you buy a wholesale deal that has a hundred thousand dollars spread, you think it's a home run. How can I not win a hundred thousand dollars spread? No. Because uh, Stefan Arnio put it, take 15% off the top, realtor fees, holding costs, everything like that. That is a lot of money. Then add your renovation budget. You know, you, you can find yourself with ten dollars or $20,000 left at the end. And then if anything happens beyond that, you know, that, that squeezes. If you have to hold the property an extra month and you're using hard money, you know, there's an extra couple grand. Okay, now you're down to eight thousand. You know, it, it can happen really quickly. So you have to be very in control of your numbers, your timelines, and uh, 
you know, renovate as much as you can within the price range that the market will bear. Uh, if you cheap out too much, no one's going to want to buy the property mm-hmm. and you're going to be stuck with it. So there's a real balancing act with flipping. And uh, yeah. I'm pretty in awe now of those who do it very successfully. I, I'm much more respectful of the process. And I, I, yeah, I think you laid out the differences perfectly. Initially, when I started getting into flipping as well, I thought of it very similar to the burn. In some respects, it is. But when you're doing a flip, your deal actually has to be significantly better than when you get a burr property. Because a lot of these flips are not going to qualify with a lender. So you are probably going to move to private money. That's an additional expense. Agent fees is something people just totally forget. 5% plus you got to pay 13% HST on top of that. <laughs> you know, like people don't even calculate the 13% HST. 13% HST is a lot of money. Yeah. And I, I actually didn't do that for my first flip. And I was like, what the fuck? Like, why did these numbers check out? And I was like, oh my God, I, I totally forget. There's so many small elements and flips that people miscalculate when they run the numbers. And when you have hard money there, man, like as you were saying, those holding costs will add up. Like our, our holding costs for one of our flips right now, is 6K a month. And yeah, so like we're at a point where we're deciding fixtures and we're just like, we're trying to find cheaper ones. We're like, what the fuck it? What's the point of trying to find cheapers one? Because we hold it for one month, then that's $6,000 lost. We'll just opt in for whatever we can get, even if it's the more expensive ones. Yeah, because the speed becomes more important at that point. And, and cheaping out can can screw you in the end a lot more than just doing it right. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. 6000 bucks a month, man. You can eat away your uh, profits pretty darn quickly, right? Mm-hmm. And, and oh, here's another thing people forget. If, especially if you're using hard money, uh, we're used to houses selling in a week or two, but that's not always going to be the case. And especially in this past summer or this current summer, we've seen a dip in the market. So now a lot of houses are sitting on the market for you know a month. Well, there's an extra uh, month of hard money that you didn't factor in. And then you also have to consider what's the close on a residential property. As investors, we're used to buying and closing within 30 days. No problem. But retail buyers, sometimes they want 60 days. And if that's the best offer, you might actually consider taking the 60-day close. Well, there's two more months. Yep. It's very true. I think, I think in flips as a whole, like it's a lot less forgiving, right? Like it's a lot easier to lose money, right? With the bird, it's like, you're not really going to lose money. You might leave a little bit more net investment in the property, but with a flip, it's actually like super easy to lose money. That margin that we all calculate, like it can go like that, like one or two things and boom, you're, you're back. Well, at like burr, it's, it's all about the time horizon, right? A burr is 20 years, 10 years, at least five years. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think the big part is like the market's been crazy. So a lot of people, you know, are super attracted to flipping, right? Like there's so many stories out there like, oh, like I bought a property, closed it, resold it a, like two weeks later for like a hundred K profit, right? Like that kind of shit exists because of the market. But um, I think people could, you know, what goes up does kind of come down or at least it'll plateau at some point. Right. And people could be in for a rude awakening at that point. I got stuck with that um, in the, the Sarnia property that I've been promoting recently. And um, when I, when I entered into it, the market was hot. And by the time I was finished, the market was cool. And I was expecting to get, you know, at least five, maybe more offers. And that wasn't really the case. So I learned very quickly that I was anticipating a higher level of uh, of profit on the job or on the property, and because the market cooled on me while I was renovating, that didn't happen. Mm-hmm. So I think that yes, we all got a little lazy 
thinking that the market would keep going up and up and up. And, and in, in the flipping game, I, I'm starting to learn that you need to really plan for, you know, don't rely on the market to save you. <laughs> yeah, you got to have a good amount of buffers and so on, right? Okay, Andrew. So, so you went from, you started off in 2017, you got the two properties that you were, that you bird and then kind of 2019, 2020, you, you jumped into more rental properties. Now you're flipping as well. Um, what are you up to these days? Like what's, you know, the next six to 12 months kind of plan for you? Yeah. So right now I've reached a mindset goal uh, that's just in the last month has really started to sink in. And that is really doubling down. And I'm, I'm, realizing that paying for things to be done for you, you pay for what you get kind of thing. So if you cheap out on social media, you cheap out on services, you cheap out on whatever, you're going to get a small result. But if you actually put effort, time, and, and usually money into getting a higher result, it also happens. And so I've started about six months ago, I, I ramped up my social media presence by um, getting help. And at first I thought, Oh man, how am I going to sustain this? You know, paying somebody to help me, but it's made a big difference. And um, we were just all at a golf tournament with you know forty or fifty of our best friends, type of thing. And I got a lot of direct feedback from that point that everybody knew who I was, what I was doing, following the journey. I feel like I know you, and it really sank in that that this makes a difference. And, you know, if your network is your net worth, then expanding your network has a lot of value. And it's not something that you can put a tangible number on. Like, well, if I post every day for a month, I'm going to get a JV partner worth a million dollars. No, you're doing it with blind faith. And it really, really does make a difference that you can start to have random conversations that you weren't expecting. If you put yourself out there, you will attract people to you and have those interesting conversations. And it's not that you're necessarily gonna capitalize on anything right away. Maybe it's just you providing somebody with some value and then six months down the road, they're like, oh, hey, I've got this opportunity. And you know, I think Andrew knows about this or whatever. The other thing is about scaling beyond myself is I'm looking into VAs and stuff right now. And that is something that I always thought to myself, well, I'm not big enough to have assistance, that's crazy. But I find myself doing a lot of tasks that aren't uniquely specific to my skill set. So if I unload some of those tasks, I can spend my time being in the right rooms. I've been traveling up and down the 401 recently, just networking, going on golf, golf meetings, having coffee with people. I actually found out people in the industry live next door to one of my flips because I was just visiting it. Um, to you know, inspect it or whatever I was doing. And I realized very quickly that me being outside of my office is where the gold happens. You can network on social media and that's great. I think you should have conversations and Zoom calls and stuff like that. But the difference that I noticed immersing myself in sort of the culture of whatever market I wanted to be in, you know, driving to Brantford because I want to get a feel for that market and talk to some locals, like talk to the neighbors. You see your for sale sign, like how's this neighborhood really getting that ground level knowledge. I found a lot of value in that. So I'm starting to change my tune to say like, my value is that my person, my body, I'm the only person that can be in front of people talking to them, maybe raising capital, that sort of stuff. I don't need to be typing out 
letters and and creating my own business cards and and doing stuff like that. You know, it might be expensive to hire a designer, but just do it and get it off your plate so you can focus on high value tasks. That's been my yeah. biggest eye opener in really the last month that it's sort of proof of concept. Yeah, and I think that's exactly it. I think the more that we, you know, we spend our time kind of juggling a million different tasks, the less that we can focus on kind of growing our actual business, right? So it's all about outsourcing as much as possible so you can focus on exactly like you said, the high value task, right? Uh, so that's great, Andrew. Thank you for sharing your journey with us. Uh, I think it gives everyone a good blueprint of kind of, you know, how you got started and and where you are today. And um, so I think that's great. Andrew, generally, we like to ask our guests three questions at the end. So the first question is, where are we going to be seeing you and what are you going to be doing five years from now? What's your goal and plan? Okay, so in the next five years, my plan is to convert my uh, single family portfolio over to multifamily. And when I started in real estate, my focus was uh, easy. So multi or single families are by far the easiest thing you can own. There's the tenants take care of everything. You don't have to worry about shoveling snow and grass and, and all this sort of stuff. So being that I had a job, I really wanted hands-off experience. So I did that. And then now that I got dialed into the, the market, the real estate market, and my knowledge and my skill sets are a lot higher, I want to convert everything into multifamily. And I, and I will admit that the first experience, the boarding house that I had, that actually scared me away from a multifamily or multi-person situation for quite a while. But now that I really see the value in multifamily, there's a lot more security in that, you know, one tenant moves out, you're not um, left holding the bag kind of thing. Um, and it's easier to scale, you know, NOI becomes a real factor, cap rates become a real factor where you can actually take a single asset and increase the value by decreasing the expenses, uh, which is is sort of a concept that's interesting to think about. You know, you don't have to add value; you can almost subtract. Like it's it's the opposite of some of the thinking sometimes. Um, so yeah, in the next five years, my plan is to convert any single families, whether they're performing or not. I think that if the market's right, we'll we'll sell them and 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 upscale. We've already done that twice this year. We've, we've unloaded a few dogs. Um, so we bought five properties or five doors in the first half of this year. And I hope to buy at least another five in the next half. And I also have a couple of the, the first two properties that I bought. I did some uh, research online and realized that they're actually both zoned R2. So I did a uh, sort of very preliminary plan uh, sketches on paper and figured out that both of those properties could be fairly easily converted to duplexes. So rather than unload those two, we're just going to make them into multifamilies and our cash flow will immediately jump by like a thousand dollars just from doing that. Cause one rent will pay for all the expenses and the other rent is all gravy. So that's really the value of multifamily that I'm finally starting to realize if you can get over some of the, the fears that people uh, sometimes have tenant risk is a huge one. I find that in multifamily, a lot of the time you're going to inherit tenants and you're not always going to be able to get them out. And nor sometimes is that fair. Like my goal is not to, you know, pick people out of houses, but if they're certainly underperforming, they're not the best tenant, then yeah, we want to get them out and provide a solution. Like maybe they want to move anyway. Uh, but that that's the difficult part. It's not as easy as just fixing a house, right? There's other things to navigate. So that's um, that's what I'm I'm focusing on right now, and really uh, scaling up 
the number of doors that I have. I've always referred to properties. Now I'm talking doors, uh, which is a very multifamily thing to do. And I actually, in the next five years too, I want to explore some other avenues of of income. Um, I don't really want to sort of steer away from real estate, but I but I am going to sort of focus on having more multiple streams of reliable income. And I don't necessarily know what those are going to be right now. I've got a few ideas, but um, just sort of diversify myself a little bit. There's so many different streams within real estate that people could literally just like make like, sure, like long-term rentals are one side of it. Right. And that's kind of the base that a lot of us start in. But then once you kind of get deeper and deeper into the ecosystem, there's so many different revenue streams, right? Like wholesaling, flipping, Airbnb, like medium term rentals, right? Like so many different things that you can do. Um, so yeah, no, that's, that's great. Man. That's, that's yeah. Great diversifying experience. within, you know, what did they call that? Like vertical integration, I guess is. Yeah. Within- there's a whole host of diversifications that you can do within the real estate sector, not to mention branching out into. Dude, but the one thing I see is that sometimes like someone that's starting off brand new, they start off with wholesaling, flipping, long-term rentals, Airbnb, and they try to do a million different things. Versus I think the approach of like you built out your long-term rentals, you know what you're doing on the single family side, like that's easy now, right? Like this year you've kind of built out your flipping business. Like, you know what you're doing. You, you learned everything that you need to do on the flips. And now if you add another revenue stream next year, like you're taking the time to slowly master one thing at a time, which is, I think, the way to go before you end up just being like a master of, what do they call it? Jack of all trades, master of none, right? So like before you get to that approach, you're kind of mastering every single thing as you go along. And so that's awesome, Andrew. Yeah, 100%. And, and I was very much uh, distracted by shiny objects in the beginning. Um, so I f- focus on multifamily, but you mentioned Airbnb and short-term and medium-term is definitely something that I'm going to seriously take a look at also. And, and that's not to distract myself. Like the multifamily is my core wealth building hold properties. The flipping is my, my income stream, but I would be a fool not to consider other things for the future. Like sort of think about the next steps and flipping is a good income stream, but it isn't always. It's gone once you sell. <laughs> yeah. And it's difficult right. in some respects. And if you could put together say an Airbnb that pays you every day all the time, that's a little bit more reliable income yeah. or, or have both, you know, like why not? So I want to, I want to build one on top of the next. Uh, and that's sort of my plan for the next five years. And then going forward with 10, I don't, this kind of worked out funny is so I'm, I'm 45 right now. And I thought, you know what, if I do this right, I can be completely, completely passive by 10 years from now, if I'm aggressive. And so I decided that, oh, Freedom 55, right? That's perfect. So I don't think I would ever stop stop working in real estate because it is pretty fun actually. Um, but I wanna be in a position by 55 that I am completely not reliant on anything. Like if I wanted to, I could just stop completely and I have money, uh, private money lending would be the ultimate goal to build up my, my, my net worth now where I can um, use that, that wealth and that capital that I've raised from, from the flipping and stuff like that to just loan it out. And then it would be hundred percent passive at that point. Yeah. That's awesome. Really respect that goal. I'm hoping likewise for myself as well, that I eventually turn to the passive side, not in the next couple of years, but maybe like maybe five to 10 year horizon. So really respect that goal, man. Um, next question we have here is if you won $10 million and you had seven days to spend it. You cannot spend it all on real estate. Uh, what would you spend it on and why? Oh man, 
I thought about, I, you know what? I didn't put enough energy into this one. <laughs> you thought it'd be easy, eh? <laughs> oh, 10 million. That's a lot of money. Seven days, eh? Well, I guess my first step would be, I would, I would definitely take care of, of my parents and set them up in such a way that they, for the rest of their lives, they worry for nothing. You know, if they want to live on the beach somewhere, you know, I do the most financially frugal thing, like I'd rent a place if it wasn't feasible to buy or whatever, but I would make sure that they're taken care of. Um, and my, my immediate family, make sure that probably just pay off any car loans, things like that. But that's not going to equate to $10 million very quickly. Um, I think I don't have kids, but I think I, I have this dream of being that, that like rich uncle that when the kids turned like 25, they realized that they have this trust fund of like <laughs> my friends, you know? So like, I have a lot of high school friends that I've, I've, uh, I still keep in touch with like every couple of weeks. It'd be nice to just have that like sort of legacy there. Like surprise, here's, I put, you know, I put $10,000 in this account, you know, 20 years ago, and now it's worth millions. <laughs> well, that would be nice. But I, I would also, you know, I can't put it all, but I can put some in real estate. Of course. So, so, so maybe I would start my private lending business sooner than later. Because nice. I think I think that I'd like to have assets. So I'd probably buy like, I mean, hell, I could go to Sudbury or Windsor and buy half a dozen houses. Um, I wouldn't I wouldn't buy them in cash, though, of course. I would put loans on everything. But and then and then just keep like half of it for private lending. Awesome. All right, man. So if you could have a dinner with any person dead or alive, who would you choose and why? So th this, this one, I don't know if I'm, am I allowed to answer myself? <laughs> oh, from the past? <laughs> I, well, I was thinking like, could I create some sort of like paradox if my future self met my past self and my present self and we all it's just like a, a multiverse, chat. like multiple, <laughs> multiple yeah. Yeah. Marvel yeah, it's universe. Your, it's your podcast, your answer. You can do whatever <laughs> you want. <laughs> so, so, so assuming, assuming that I, I was, I was, I, I want to go into the, the past and, and sort of, you know, if I knew then what I know now set myself up a little bit differently, but with the caveat that all we know about time travel, that I don't actually change who I am because then I would not be where I am today. That's deep. Yeah. But, but the, the, the more, uh, the more simple answer is I, I, I came up with right away, Albert Einstein. I remember I, when I was in about like grade eight, I did a speech on Albert Einstein and I was always fascinated by Albert Einstein, the, the idea that science and relativity, that he came up with so many like almost spiritual concepts that it's weird how science and, and, and this sort of spiritual or, or like sort of philosophical world blend together. And I think he was very interesting for that. And a lot of the quotes that we, we quote today were, were from him. And I just read an article uh, recently that said something about uh, they're seeing a light in a black hole. They found a black hole where they can see light in. And, and that apparently was one of Albert Einstein's predictions from however heck long ago that was. So I think that would be a really interesting conversation, very mind expanding. Awesome, man. Yeah, no, that's that's very deep. I mean, we, ne we never heard anyone say Einstein yet. <laughs> um, Andrew, thank you so much for jumping on this podcast. It was amazing to get the, uh, I guess we chatted yesterday, but it was amazing to, I guess, really catch up, hear your journey in, in its full picture, sharing it with the audience. You're doing an amazing, you're doing amazing things, man. And I know that you're very active on social media. So if anyone's really interested in seeing where you're going, they could just 
give you a follow on Instagram. Is that correct? Yeah, I mean, Facebook, I'm obviously Andrew Cox, but everywhere else, I'm uh, Andrew Cox, R-E-I. Awesome. There's a, there's a YouTube channel, Instagram, and uh, website. So check all yeah, that you're, out. Yeah, you're going super hard on uh, on social media, and you're you're adding a ton of value without asking for anything back. So highly suggest you give Andrew a follow on, on social media platforms. If you guys enjoyed this podcast episode, make sure to like, subscribe, comment, do whatever you can to support the podcast. We're on 80 reviews now in apple podcast uh reviews so let's try to get that to 100 by the end of the year we have four more months left um anyways guys hope you enjoyed this episode and until next time everyone invest smarter and live better take care